We're beginning a new series on the book of the prophet Ezekiel today. And not many people study Ezekiel because it is a confusing book. It's also sometimes a scary book. And many times when we read confusing and scary things in the scripture, we think this makes no difference whatsoever to real life. It's just too gobbledygooky or too wild. Of course, there's an equal and opposite group of people who read the scary and confusing things and totally geek out about it. I'm sure it's difficult for you to tell. I tend to fall into that latter category. In fact, most of my life, I've been reading Ezekiel's crazy, almost hallucinogenic visions and getting completely caught up in them, like studying them, learning about them, drawing them, paying other people to draw them, reading up on angelology and demonology and all these weird mystical pursuits. I mean, there's just, it's total intellectual science fiction fodder for the geeks among us. Uh, and what I'm going to try and do today is bridge the gap between the people like me, who just want to geek out on the weirdness, and the people probably like most of you who go, what the crap am I reading right now? And how quickly can I skip over it? So first of all, you should know that the book of Ezekiel is really confusing. Did anybody read it or any portion of it in preparation? Really? You, the other two services, there are no Christians. You are the only Christians at Westwinds in this service because nobody even touched the Bible. It's really confusing. In fact, in, in Hebrew, it's, it's a really poorly written book. It's a really poorly written manuscript. Um, he is a very educated writer who writes like an academic, meaning he's all over the place and he just loses himself in detail and repeats it, I think because he's really fascinated by it. So that, that's part of why it's confusing. And then it's also equally confusing because the, the images are like nothing you're going to see anywhere else, not only in biblical literature, but in antiquity. There's just crazy stuff here. Um, so we begin in Ezekiel chapter 1. The prophet Ezekiel receives the word of the Lord when he's 30 years old. Anybody here 30? So we have a visual reference point. Okay, good. Christians over 30. That's this room. Okay, perfect. He's a, he's a priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, which is also the Babylonians, uh, by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now, it's significant that he's at the Kebar Canal. It's also, it's the river Euphrates. And the Euphrates River is in Babylon. Ezekiel is standing at the edge of the river Euphrates in Babylon, which tells us all kinds of stuff about the context of this book. Um, first and foremost, it tells us that, that, that the people of Israel have been subsumed by the Babylonian Empire, actually the people of, of Judah. They, they've, been, they've been taken over and led off into exile. And, and it hasn't quite happened yet, but soon the temple in Jerusalem is going to be totally destroyed. And their hopes for their national, religious, and civil identity are going to be dashed. And it, it should be said, they don't like living in Babylon. Like, it's not that they, they got taken over by this amazing place. It's not like they got, they got exiled into Las Vegas. No, the, the, this place sucks. And Ezekiel would have felt, well, he would have felt crappy. Have you ever had an experience where you looked at your life and just thought, my, my, life, is, my life is crap. My life is total crap. Everything is crappy right now. Uh, maybe you use a synonym, but I think you know the, the feeling, right? You just feel like you feel dirty and crappy and stupid and frustrated by the details of your life. That's how Ezekiel would have felt. There's a biblical word for that. The word is unclean. The Babylonians were an unclean people. Living in Babylonian exile would have made Ezekiel feel as though he had been contaminated, like he was, he was dirty inside. 
Well, so he comes to the bank of the river to get clean. I mean, to, to wash himself, to go through a ceremonial process by which he would be cleansed, but also to feel spiritually, emotionally clean. Because moving water has that power. Um, you know, that's why people are drawn to the ocean. That's why people are drawn to the Great Lakes. I mean, you get around m moving water and you feel like this is, this is how clean I want to be. And so there's Ezekiel at the banks of the river, and we're told in verse 4, he looks up, and from the north, there comes a storm cloud. Now, north of Babylon, there's a mountain. And the Babylonians believed that that was where their god lived, Baal. And the reason that the storm cloud from the north is so significant is because Baal was the cloud rider, the storm rider. So if you're in Babylon, you're looking north, you see a storm cloud, who do you think is coming? Baal. But it's not. Now, let me introduce you to a fascinating feature that will provide many hours of entertainment in biblical literature known as parody. The biblical writers love to tease. Like, they love, they love to make fun of other gods. That's like their favorite thing. Elijah and the prophets of Baal is a straight-up category of one-upsmanship, and you see that same kind of tactic being employed here because it's not Baal coming in the cloud. In fact, the cloud that shows up is much, much bigger and more electrifying than Baal's cloud. It's literally like the prophets are saying, you know what, my God went to your God's house, beat him up, stole his cloud, and now he's riding it here. And it's way better than you. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that's being communicated to God's people. And Ezekiel's having a difficult time articulating exactly what he sees. Because everything has a character and a quality to it that doesn't have a good parallel in real earthly life. So, so he wants you to know that this cloud is really stormy. But the way he tries to describe it is that there's sparks and fire coming all around it. Like, like an electrical storm, he just doesn't have those words. Then he wants you to know that the cloud is dark, but also the cloud is liquid somehow. So he describes it as like being molten um, metal. And, and elsewhere, as he gets closer and closer and sees these things, everything is glowing, everything is bright, everything is magnificent, everything is brilliant. Everything is dread-inducing, and everything is made out of jewels that have no earthly parallel. Which means it's just, it's just spectacular. Now, as the cloud gets closer, and remember, it is a dreadful cloud, Ezekiel looks, and inside, there are four living creatures. And they all had a human likeness. So they're, they're anthropomorphic. Okay, um, but they're they're ugly people. Like they're 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 really ugly. First, and I find this the ugliest thing. They have no knees. I just think that's like it's just it just feels fat to me. It's just like you know it just feels. I don't mean like obese. I mean it just feels like a an uncooked sausage. That's what their knees and a lack of knees look like. And then and then instead of feet, they have hooves. Um, is it or is it hoofs? What's the plural of yeah, hooves. Oh, but, wow. I sort of thought that was rhetorical, but there we go. So they throw, and, then, and then they have, they have wings. They have two that just, they, then they don't fly using their wings. They just have them. They're ornamental. So they have two that go up and are going to hold up a platform. We'll find out more about that later. And then two that cover their bodies so that you can't see that they don't have knees because they're so disgusting, right? That's what, and then, and then they, have, they have four heads. Not one head with four faces. They have four separate heads. And one has the, the face of a man on it. One of the heads 
at the back has, has the face of an eagle um, and a lion and a bull. Um, now, immediately, this is where a lot of people stop reading the book because they're like, dude, I don't have any idea what this means or why this matters. Um, but consider what's being communicated. Um, first of all, four very different creatures are being held together beca because that's what God does. God holds things together when everything in our life tries to rip them apart. And it's not just that God holds things together, you know, a little bit. Consider what specifically God is holding together in this composite being, this creature, which, by the way, th this is called a cherub. Later on in, in Ezekiel chapter 10, these creatures appear once more, and, and they're appropriately labeled cherubim. So when you th hear cherub, probably you think of a naked baby angel, right? That's not what cherubs are. Cherubs are composite creatures, but they're radically complex, uh, like a griffin on steroids, which, which is another instance of parody, right? Because you, you know that all those foreign cultures, those ancient cultures had, had like animal-human hybrid gods, right? Like in Egyptian mythology, you know, you get a person with cat face, right? Well, just again, imagine the ancient Israelis going, how many, uh, how many things does your, uh, your angel have? <laughs> Ours has four, right? It's, it's that, it's designed to show again the theological and supernatural superiority of Yahweh over all competing powers. Yes, exactly. So, so these, these creatures appear, and one has the face of a man. What is, what is a human being like? Human beings have an unparalleled ability to make decisions. We are wise, rational, noble creatures. And together with human beings, you have a lion known for its strength, its heraldic power, its, 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 its royal bearing. And a bull or an ox which is not only a domestic and useful creature, but is a symbol of fertility. And an eagle, recalling incredible vision, speed, and perspective. That's what God is holding together. God is holding together the noblest, strongest, swiftest, and most useful among us. That's what God does when his church, the spirit of God holds us together. And that's also what God is doing inside of you. Because we sometimes feel like we're at war with ourselves, you know? I mean, consider nobody wants to be walked on. Nobody wants to be taken advantage of. So you have this impulse inside of you that wants to show you're strong, you're capable. You're not gonna be, you know, trampled on. But sometimes that impulse has to be held in check. You can't solve every argument with your fists. Sometimes you have to use your mind. Sometimes you have to think your way through a problem. And it's the Spirit of God that holds those two very different emotions in check. The desire to dominate, to attack, and the desire to reason. And of course, the appropriate answer isn't always to reason your way out of everything. Sometimes you must be strong. Sometimes you must push back. Sometimes you must advocate for yourself. How are you going to know when? The Spirit of God is going to tell you. Because He's alive in you. He is keeping your strength and your nobility together. Just like he's reminding you that sometimes you need incredible vision. You need to rise above your circumstances, to get some perspective, to look around, to, to dream and see what else is out there. And sometimes you just got to go do your job. Sometimes you got to be the ox. But you can't be the ox all the time. You can't just work and work and work. 
It'll suck the life right out of you. So then the Spirit of God reminds you, you're not just a worker, you're also a visionary. Inside of you is a dreamer. Can't dream all the time, but you better dream sometimes. See, this is what God does for us. What God was doing here, God is also doing here. He's showing us how to live in tension with the different parts of who we are as people created in his image and likeness. Now, we're told that these four creatures, each with four heads facing four different ways, that these four creatures move as a unit. And, and they never rotate, they never turn. We've talked about this some months ago. So imagine they, they, they sort of move like a drone, you know, the toy drones that you get. And underneath each of these four creatures, we're told that there are, this is verse 16, four wheels within wheels within wheels. Uh, so uh, imagine like a, a gyroscope. Um, and again, like the living creatures, the wheels are made of fire and they shoot sparks and they have all these cool molten metal gems and probably there's a rainbow thrown in there for good measure. I mean, they're, they're really dramatic wheels. And the reason there's wheels within wheels is because they're on the ground underneath the four living creatures and they don't turn either. They just move omnidirectionally. And the wheels are covered in eyes, which always makes me want to blink, because I just imagine rolling over my eyeball, how uncomfortable that would be. But the purpose of the eyes is to tell us that the wheels are alive. They're sentient. They are another lesser, lower order of angelic creature. You see now why in Jewish mystical literature, people just geek out on this for days and days and days. You've heard of the you know, seven orders of angels, the nine orders of angels, of angelic creatures. I mean, so much Jewish mysticism is rooted in a close study of Ezekiel. So you have these angelic creatures, that underneath are these angelic creatures, and now you start to realize, wait, if you've got four wheels, what are you, what are you looking at? Four wheels means you've got a a tractor, right, it's Michigan. No, four wheels means you got, you got a chariot. You got a chariot. Now, um, Baal had a chariot. The other gods, they had chariots too, Marduk. Um, how many wheels did uh, Baal's chariot have? Two. He's so cute in his little baby chariot. <laughs> Now, Yahweh's chariot, Gargod's chariot, he's got four living creatures moving his chariot. Um, how many living creatures does Baal have moving his? Just one, just one. <laughs> the parodies just continue with the theological point, the, the point being that, like, look, like, no matter who you're afraid of, your God the power that lives inside of you is incomprehensibly more powerful. And here's Ezekiel in this land that, of, of exile where, where Yahweh's not supposed to show up and Yahweh shows up. God shows up. And, and Ezekiel looks for the place where, where Baal is supposed to come, but it's not Baal. It's God. It's God. And instead of being stunned by sort of a divine appearing of a false god, Ezekiel's floored by the super majesty 
of God Almighty. Now, this is significant. Because you and I, man, when we're in the middle of our problems, our problems seem so big. We look at them and we go, man, God could never show up here. God could never show up in the middle of my depression. God could never show up in the middle of my loneliness. God could never show up in the middle of my life with all its problems, all its crappiness, and all its shut doors, with all its broken dreams. Really? Man, if you look at your problems, they seem huge. Don't look at your problems first. Look at God first, because your problems are going to get a whole lot smaller, a whole lot faster. When we talk about God, this is who we're talking about. Like, you understand what he's doing. When God shows up in his chariot, they see me rolling, they hate Above the four living creatures is what's called a firmament, um, a platform made of ice, dread-inducing ice, we're told. And above that ice is a throne. Now, when God rolls up like this, as he does several times in the scripture, we're told, you've got to understand, he's, he's coming for two things. He's coming to save, and he's coming to judge. So this prophecy is both a warning and a proclamation. What's amazing is that the, even the warning is good. Like when God judges, that's not bad. I mean, we, we're scared of judgment. It sounds, it's, sounds really judgmental. Sounds like it's going to be punitive. But all the way through the scripture, when, when we speak appropriately in the way the Bible speaks about God's judgment, God judges to make things right. So when you think about God showing up in your life, because make no mistake, God's coming for you. God's coming for you to make your life right, to make you right, to make the life around you right, through you, with you, for you, all the rest of it. Like, that might be uncomfortable, but that will not be bad. In the same way that you got to break a bone that heals in a screwy way, that's the technical medical term, I believe, so that you can set it properly, that, that's the kind of judgment that God brings to make things right, not just to smoosh them into the ground. And these people need, they need God's saving. They need God's judgment. It's just like you and me. Like, we, we need it. And a lot of times we think we, like God, God isn't coming for us, you know, because of the bad stuff that we've done or the bad things that we've thought. Or, do, you, do you know what they did? I mean, never forget, they are in exile precisely because they were disobedient. God warned them. Don't keep getting entangled with the Babylonians because they're a much bigger group than you. They said, no problem. And then look, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. There they go, into exile. And, and it's not just that they were taunting and being involved with these false and foreign powers. I mean, they were, they were also caught up in false and foreign religions. They were caught up in detestable practices, the scripture says, things like human sacrifice. Some of the humans that they would have killed would have been young children. God hates these things. And so they, they're in the midst of their punishment, and here they think God can't possibly come for them. But this is what we learn about God. God is always coming for what he considers his. God has claimed you. God has claimed your life. God has claimed your thoughts. He's claimed your family. He's claimed your hearts. He's claimed your resources. He owns you. And so he's not letting you go. It doesn't matter how far off you are. It doesn't matter how, how many bad things you've done. 
God's coming for you because you're his. And when he comes, he comes to heal. He comes to restore. He comes to save. And he comes to judge. And what's amazing, I was reading a, a commentary, a Jewish commentary uh, earlier this week. And the writer had such a, just such a great way of articulating it. He said, every morning when God wakes up, he asks himself whether or not he will be merciful today. And every day, God answers yes. Because that's who God wants to be. God wants to show you mercy. Not because you're good. Because he is. If you were good, you wouldn't need the mercy. But God's incomparable goodness motivates him to get out of bed in the morning, get on top of the four living creatures, and go for a drive to save. The vision continues. Ezekiel is falling down on the ground, and he sees this wheels and the four living creatures and a platform made of ice and the throne. And then on top of the throne, he sees one who has the appearance of something like a man. It's a really convoluted, gobbledygooky way to say all that. One who has the appearance of something like a man. Why don't you just say man? Because well, it's not a man. It's something more than a man. Elsewhere in Daniel and Isaiah, um, that same phrase is often translated one like the son of man. Does that sound familiar at all? The son of man was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Ezekiel sees the pre-existent Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty in all his glory, and he can't totally describe what he's seeing, which is why you get all this funky, weird language. And this, this appearance of something like a human is glowing, burning, sparks are shooting out of it. It looks like a rainbow, but it also looks like particular stones. It looks like melted metal, but it also looks like fire. I mean, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And Ezekiel can't quite look at it. He sort of gets um, some kind of refracted image. So imagine him cowering. Can't quite look, but he, he can get out his phone. <laughs> You've got the idea. And we're told that the chariot comes up close to him and then lifts up off the ground and then elevates into the air. And think about the posture then. Think about the, the blocking of Ezekiel in relation to the Son of Man. The scripture tells us that Ezekiel looks up through his loins, past his loins to his face, almost like a, an MRI, just zooming upward through his body. So Ezekiel's looking up, and this posture is the posture of God. A posture demonstrates two things, right? Like dominance, you know. And also help. That's how God comes to us. Like once you know who you're dealing with, this is God. Once you have the appropriate relationship before God, flat, then you're ready to receive God's help. Then you're ready. God comes to save. God comes to judge. 
And in this, we have, this is called a, a throne vision, a Merkava vision. Uh, Merkava is the Hebrew word for throne. We get this dazzling display of God in all his glory. So, like, the next time you sing a song about God's throne or God's throne room, this is what you get to see. The next time you hear somebody talk about an angel, this is what you got to imagine. The next time somebody talks about Jesus being God, take a selfie. Because when we come to this vision, there are three massive conclusions we draw. First and foremost, we know God is coming. He's coming for you because you belong to him. God is coming, and he is coming with good news. The good news is that he's coming to save and to judge. And last but not least, and don't miss this, the people who go searching for God, you know, like Ezekiel at the river, the people who go searching for God, well, they're the ones God finds first. So if you feel like your life is crappy, and like you're too far away from God, and there's too much stuff, then get your eyes off all that. Get yourself to the river. Lift up your head and start looking, because he's on his way. He's coming for you. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you. Um, for the, the power and the provocation of this piece of the Bible, these, these wild visions that, that remind us who we're dealing with. We're so humbled and so grateful simultaneously that, that you would work with us, that you would speak with us, that you would send your spirit to inhabit us. And so we ask God that you'd continue to grow us and nurture us, to mature us, to bring us into a holier and more close relationship with you so that you might be glorified and we might be saved. These things we pray in your name. Amen.